Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we'll talk to Ambassador Mike Froman. In January 2009, at the height of the global financial crisis, Mike Froman was invited to join the incoming Obama administration as the Deputy National Security Advisor handling international economics. Immediately upon taking office, this Princeton and Harvard Law grad had to quickly master the details of the new administration's policies and reach out to foreign counterparts to prevent a further deterioration of the global economy. The key country new to international economic coordination at the head of state level was China. And by bringing China into the group of 20 major economies, also known as the G20, the Obama administration was acknowledging a new truth. Any solution to the Great Recession would have to include the world's new number two economy, China. The city of Pittsburgh hosted that G20 leader summit in September 2009, where President Obama summarized global efforts this way. Here in Pittsburgh, we've taken several significant steps forward to secure our recovery and transition to strong, sustainable, and balanced economic growth. We brought the global economy back from the brink. We laid the groundwork today for long-term prosperity as well. But the Pittsburgh G20 and addressing the global financial crisis was only the beginning for Mike Froman's interaction with Chinese counterparts. In 2013, Froman was confirmed by the Senate to be the United States Trade Representative. Over eight years, on issues from climate change to opening the Chinese market, he was able to use international meetings, visits to Beijing, and presidential summits to push the U.S.'s economic agenda. And in a fitting way, Mike Froman's last trip to China as a cabinet official was for the G20, hosted in the lakeside city of Hangzhou. Chinese President Xi Jinping opened that event. Now I declare that the G20 Hangzhou Summit now begins. Eight years ago, at the height of the international financial crisis, the G20 acted in a spirit of unity and partnership, pulled the world economy back from the precipice and pushed it onto the track of stability and recovery. And now, here's Ambassador Mike Froman on symmetry, trade negotiations, and how he shaped China's choices to align with the United States. It's hard for people to remember just how dire the situation was at the end of 2008, beginning of 2009. Uh, we were losing uh, uh, literally hundreds of thousands of jobs a month. Uh, the, um, the economy was in contraction. Uh, at the end of the Bush administration in October, they convened the G20 at the leaders level for the first time. The G20 had been an organization that goes back to the 90s, uh, from the previous set of financial crises and had met at the minister level, but never at the head of state level. And so the Bush administration decided to convene it in October. Uh, it was convened again in April in London. And 
it was really sort of two sides of the same coin. Domestically, we were working on uh, the response to the crisis, uh, TARP, uh, bailing out the uh, the banks, the uh, Troubled Asset the Relief Troubled Program, Asset Relief Program um, what became a bailout also for uh, the auto industry and its uh, financial um, uh, affiliates. Uh, but there was an international part of this, and the G20 became the mechanism for coordinating the international response to the crisis, including at London under uh, Gordon Brown's leadership, mobilizing half a trillion dollars of resources uh, for the IMF. Uh, to be able to sort of convey to the markets that the international community had come together and was willing to do what was necessary to prevent this crisis from deepening even further. So it was a very important set of developments. There were other things on the agenda well as well, including um, dealing with tax havens and other issues, mm -hmm. but, right. uh, but, but mobilizing resources for the international system and then beginning the process of what became the Financial Stability Board of an international regulatory a cooperation mechanism for the countries to come together and begin to rethink financial regulation. Uh, that was all done under the G20. So in that run-up to the G20, which the U.S. is not hosting yet, and we'll get to the hosting, which is always um, much heavier on the host country than when you're going to another place. But just previewing in the pre-London and in London, uh, was there a fair amount of disagreement or unity among the major economies? And then in this case, I would ask China as well. It's kind of What's your recollection of what the major players were talking about and, and points of divergence or convergence? I think there was a fair degree of unity about the need to take collective action. What that action and, was... And be seen as taking And be seen as, uh, as taking action. But that showed that there was international cooperation and efficient mechanism for managing that cooperation and one that took into account the seriousness of the financial crisis. Uh, I think the precise elements of that cooperation is what had to be worked out. Uh, before, during, and, and after uh, London, because uh, this crisis was different than previous crises, but you wanted to make sure you were using all the tools that were available to the international system. And it was, you know, the, the whole idea of the G20 became, and, and, and really the, the, uh, the London meeting was the first instance of this, it became the mechanism that recognized the increasingly important role of the major emerging economies. Uh, there had always been a G8 plus five uh, meeting, which was, you know, the G8 meaning the, the, the old G7 industrialized Western countries plus Russia. Uh, Russia was added in the 90s. And they would have at their summits, they would invite the five major emerging markets to come. But it was always sort of seen as a second class the citizen. Kids, the kids table. The kids table. They would yeah. come just for lunch or they would come for just part of the meeting. Mm -hmm. And the G20 reflected that the the... Uh, realization that that wasn't going to make it anymore, that we needed to have China, India, Brazil, uh, South Africa, Indonesia at the table at all times. And um, uh, it was a real opportunity there to create new architecture for the international system. To reflect the true economic forces and balances in the world as opposed to the way they were in 1945 or 1950. I think that's right. But I guess the challenge there was it was one thing to have them at the table, but the question is what role were they going to play? And would they step up to take responsibility, including make commitments, uh, obligations on, to help manage the international system? When it came to the financial crisis in April and then later in, in Pittsburgh in September, uh, I think China was a pretty active player, and there was a, a lot of very good interaction, uh, for example, between Wang Xixiong, who was the leading economic official at that time, uh, and our Treasury Department and our White House. Um, 
when it came to other issues later on around trade and the WTO, perhaps less willingness to take on obligations mm -hmm. and responsibilities, but certainly in the middle of the crisis, the G20 proved to be an effective uh, uh, avenue. So on the Pittsburgh meeting, um, maybe just taking a step back and explaining what your role was in the White House at that time and how you, as the architect for a lot of that G20 feeders meeting in Pittsburgh, saw that and then orchestrated to make it a success. So one of my jobs at the White House was to be the Sherpa for the summits, for the G8, uh, and also for, for the G20, which meant the, the person who managed the process of preparing for the summits. With the G20, there's actually really two tracks of work that come together. One is run by the Treasury Department, and it's with the other finance ministries and central banks. And then one, by the Sherpa, who oversees the summit as a whole and uh, deals with a lot of the other issues that are on the agenda uh, as, as well. And in our system, that's run out of the White House. And that's run out of the White House. Leadership kind of Yeah, each country does it differently. Sometimes it's in the foreign ministry. Sometimes it's somebody at the, the, the prime minister's office or the president's office. Uh, so each one is, is somewhat different. And the Sherpas meet regularly and engage regularly before the summits to work through what should be on the agenda, what are the proposals, work out the, the details of the proposals, and then you know, ultimately the language, the communique, which becomes... Um, the focus of, uh, of a lot of the work and, and the release of the summits. Late night sessions. Lots of trying late to make night sure sessions. The language is agreed to. Exactly. Yeah. And it was at the end of the London summit when uh, the leaders uh, said, well, should we do this again uh, next year or should we, do we need one to have, have one earlier? And somewhat to my surprise, President Obama put up his hand and said, yes, we need to have one earlier and we'll do it. And, and that's so, when he looked to you and said, Mike, make <laughs> exactly, that happen. Exactly. There wasn't a lot of uh, downward consultation <laughs> before that decision was taken. Uh, but it, he was absolutely right. And we did need, uh, we, we couldn't have gone a whole year given the nature of the crisis and how it was evolving to, uh, um, to, to have another summit. And having another summit both created an action-forcing event for the countries involved to further their cooperation, talk about what the next step was, um, and then, of course, in September, demonstrate to the international community and the economy and the markets that, in fact, the countries were coming back together again, continuing to work to manage the crisis, and very importantly, continue to put in place a new regulatory regime to prevent crises like these from occurring again in the future. So the regulatory regime was on that kind of future-oriented, but there was also fiscal and monetary stimulus and That's ways, right. coordinated ways that would uh, address the, the real-time crisis. And so um, I'm curious how we ended up in Pittsburgh, but then as you're preparing for having all these leaders there and kind of figuring out what the communique would be, what would be in the communique, what you want to communicate, uh, how was working with your counterparts in China, but also then with the other members of the, of the G20? Well, what emerged um, through this G20 process, and we had two summits in 2009, two summits in 2010, and, and then I think it went on to an annual uh, schedule, was this really became much more than just a crisis management forum. It became a new piece of international architecture. And we used the summits and we used the network of Sherpas and, and other contacts that we had to address any number of other issues that became a mechanism for talking about what was going on in oil markets uh, and, and prices around that. Uh, it became a channel for talking about climate change and things uh, that were going on in the climate change, the UN climate change negotiations. So it became a very useful uh, forum uh, or, or mechanism for international coordination across any number of, of other issues. Um, uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, as an example, uh, we put on the agenda the issue of getting rid of energy subsidies phasing them out over time. 
as and a climate change issue or as a market distorting issue? Well, it was that the 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 in fact the reason we chose and we, the reason we focused on energy subsidies was because it was related. It was a fiscal issue. So countries were spending an enormous amount of resources on energy uh, subsidies that were distorting um, markets. It was a uh, it was a uh, climate change issue as well in terms of leading to the overuse of fossil fuels. Uh, it was a health issue in many cases, uh, and so it, it was it was a issue that touched a number of different objectives, and um, it created the beginning of a process for monitoring and phasing out energy subsidies. Not that they are gone, but I think over time putting this on the agenda, and this is the way international governance generally works: you put issues on the agenda, you create processes around them. You create reporting mechanisms on those processes. You assess the progress being made. You take on additional obligations. And over time, you make real progress. Uh, even if you never achieve the ultimate objective, you're making progress in that direction. That process helps address some of the exactly. and some of the problems. So for the Pittsburgh summit, is there one part of it you think, yeah, we really got that right, or something that sticks out in your mind? I think, I think uh, what Pittsburgh did was begin to normalize the G20 process. As an institution. As an institution. It, it, one of the outcomes of the summit was, in fact, the recognition that the G20 was the, quote, premier forum for international economic cooperation. That was an explicit statement that the G7 or the G8, while very important and could get certain things done as sort of the rich country club, that, other, for example, in terms of donor efforts in development or humanitarian issues that, that the other forums might not be able to get done. It wasn't sufficient for international economic cooperation, and the G20 going forward was going to be the focus. And at Pittsburgh, that was uh, consciously put into the language to kind of exactly uh, memorialize the G20 role in doing that. I guess I'd ask, do you recall, were certain countries pushing for that sort of language, or was there just a general recognition that oh my gosh, the financial markets and the, the global trading system is so intertwined with these 20 economies, this needs to be recognized. I think some of the G7 countries were pushing against that language because they- Without naming names, they didn't correct, want to be diluted. Correctly recognized that it diluted their, their special role that they had previously uh, had. Um, or at but, least in their mind, they had, yes. Uh, yeah. uh, but I, I think uh, uh, not sufficiently that it, that they, that, that it failed uh, to move forward. And then as a small anecdote, I'll say something that I think we failed at at Pittsburgh. Um, you know, we, I, we, we focused on a lot of the specific details of the summit. One thing I did not focus on was on the size of the table. And when we got to Pittsburgh and walked in the room, it was the most enormous table um, I had ever seen. And in fact, it was very hard to see somebody all the way across. A leader, as hard a to leader, see another leader. Another leader, because the table you, tends to have two seats per country for the uh, the president and the Sherpa, or the president and the finance minister during the, the, the finance discussions. And so it's only you know, 42, 44, I think it's 21, 21 countries G20 altogether. It's a little bit larger. A little bit larger, and then you have some of the international organizations that sit there. Um, but somehow we created a table that uh, probably could have sat 100 uh, or so. And it sets a, I think, a bad precedent because from then on, these tables were quite large and we lost a little bit of the intimacy. I see. Right. There's a certain amount of intimacy of leaders really just being able to reach across the table and talk to each other. And uh, that's one of the great strengths of having summits is that it not all be 
pre-scripted, but that you have some real interaction among leaders. Uh, and uh, that was something that was going to be important to maintain going forward. Right. So bringing uh, a telescope now to these G20 meetings. It just says no matter how much time and effort you spend on preparing for these the things, the you know, and the it all comes, it comes down the to the furniture. <laughs> um, speaking of a rather disruptive summit, um, one of the other things that you worked on in the White House was on climate change. Mm. And uh, I, could you just step back and explain how the administration came to the view that climate change was really important and a policy priority for the United States, and then how going into Copenhagen uh, in uh, 2009, kind of where we stood and what the, what the goals were, and then I'll ask about the, the Chinese interaction. So, well, I think the administration came in, the president came in in 2009, certainly with a strong view that uh, climate change was a priority, uh, was a serious um, uh, threat and needed to be dealt with. Uh, uh, the president and, and the secretary of state appointed Todd Stern as our chief climate negotiator at the State Department, um, and, and he worked very closely across the government to really manage our negotiations. We inherited from the Bush administration something called the, it was, uh, I think they called it the Major Emitters Forum. We called it the Major Economies Forum. But it was the same thing, and it was about 30 countries developed and developing. A lot of overlap with the G20, um, by the way, and it sort of these overlaps were sort of reinforcing. But these were the major countries that were involved in the climate change discussion and where obligations from these countries would be necessary if we were going to solve climate change, and that therefore included countries like China and India as well as uh, the EU and the United States. Um, uh, so. Uh, having inherited this from the Bush administration, uh, the way it worked is that the White House chaired it, and I chaired it, and Todd was our Todd Stern was the U.S. representative, and we worked very closely to coordinate those meetings and the agenda. And uh, a, number, a number of the same people who played a role in the G20 ended up playing a role in the major economies forum as well. We spent 2009 uh, really preparing for the Copenhagen summit and using the MEF as the mechanism. Uh, to do that, and then as we got closer to Copenhagen, the uh, the UN um, and the, the the Danes created their own sort of green room group of about thirty countries. Why don't you explain what a green room? Well, is? green room sort of goes back to other international organizations. Where at the climate, since this is a UN negotiation, you had. You know, 194 countries or something of that sort there. Makes it difficult to reach consensus. Or exactly. And so you need to have some smaller but representative group of countries who can get together and work through the specifics of, of various proposals. Uh, so in this case, there were about 30 or so countries who constituted that. A lot of overlap with the, the Major Economies Forum. And Major Economies Forum was not intended to be a substitute for the UN negotiations, but a place where, you know, sort of a safe space where you could you could float ideas, uh, flesh out options, and then feed them into the appropriate UN processes, including this this 30 room, 30 country uh, process as well. And these would be countries and economies that had the bandwidth and the interest in the issue. As for some countries, you know, climate change was of interest, but they didn't they didn't have the, That's right. the, the technical expertise or didn't really affect their uh, economy or their population that much. And so you have a natural kind of attrition of these are the countries that care enough, have, have the bandwidth, and can actually bring something to the table in discussing language. And so 
you're saying that the green room in Copenhagen or using that kind of right. subset of some of the members was an important part to then leading up to the summit meeting in December. But the G20 countries you know, played a key role. China played a key role, obviously. And we used, again, the Sherpa network as well as the climate change negotiator network to flesh out issues. So oftentimes, you know, Todd and I would meet with the Chinese Sherpa and the Chinese uh, vice minister from the uh, NDRC to uh, flesh, flesh out these issues and uh, bring them back to the table in a way that helped move the negotiations forward. And this would have been Ho Yafei and Xie Jiehua exactly. the, from the exactly. National Development Reform exactly. Commission who was handling it for the Chinese. So um, Jeff Bader, who served as the senior director in the White House uh, for East Asia for the first part of the Obama administration, has written in his book about the summit meeting in Copenhagen in which there was not a lot of movement and there was some fair amount of distance among particularly the developing and the developed countries. And some of the major developing countries were meeting and the US side was trying to talk to particularly China because China had an interest in some of these issues. Could you just recall what you could sure. about how, how that went <laughs> went down? It was a, it was a chaotic few days. Uh, uh, the U.S. delegation had been there for a number of days, and as you said, there wasn't a lot of progress being made. And you had been there early as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I was there throughout. Secretary Clinton arrived, um, and that was a very important moment because she announced that as part of an overall deal, the U.S. would um, uh, commit, not itself, but on behalf of the um, sort of developed countries, that we would agree to mechanisms that, with the goal of mobilizing $100 billion a year in climate finance to help developing countries with their, their mitigation and um, adjustment needs. And that was not to be all official finance, but had to do with markets and philanthropy and a variety of other things. That sort of unlocked some of the negotiations, and there was some progress over the subsequent 12 or 16 hours. Because it was seen as addressing the concerns of the developing, of the developing countries. Exactly. Uh, at which point the president arrived. And I, I went out uh, to, to meet the plane and uh, briefed him on the way into town and said, you know, I'm afraid we're not anywhere near an agreement and there's still a lot of chaos and, you know, we'll see what the day is going to hold. And he got there and we had a whole series of meetings lined up for him. He met with uh, Wen Jibao, Premier Wen, uh, early in the day, uh, went on to see other meetings, gave his speech at the plenary. Uh, uh, we had various green room meetings that he participated in. And then later in the afternoon, he wanted to meet again with Premier Wen uh, to go over some further ideas. He and this was, is talking about, sorry, about the communique, what was going to be agreed to for... And the package of the deal. I mean, it's more, le less the communique, which is really about language, but more what would a deal look like? Remember, the whole purpose of this, the, the key thing about Copenhagen was that it, it, it broke the mold of climate negotiations to that point. In Kyoto, in the late 90s, the agreement was there were developed and there were developing countries. And developed countries had obligations and developing countries didn't. And what Copenhagen's import was, was the recognition that to solve climate change, it wasn't enough for the developed countries to take on obligations. That if China and India were the fastest growing emitters in the world, and China's case, the largest emitter in the world, if they didn't take on obligations, we were never gonna solve climate change. And so it was to break down that wall between the developed and the developing. Uh, it took then several years between Copenhagen and Paris 
to actually reach an agreement uh, that to what those obligations might be. But Copenhagen was the key moment. It was the turning point because it opened up a post-Kyoto reality. The president wanted to see Premier Wen um, to lock in some of these issues, to talk about the outstanding issues. And these would be kind of what obligations countries might take on exactly. in eventual Paris Exactly, as part of an overall package, what kind of uh, verification mechanisms there might be, how the climate finance fit into it, uh, but the overall, the overall uh, uh, framework for, for the negotiations going forward. Uh, he, the advanced teams reached out to the Chinese team, um, there was no response. Various people were sent to go look around to see where the Chinese team was um, without success. Uh, finally, somebody spotted um, a Chinese security personnel uh, outside a conference room. Uh, and by the way, this conference room, this conference facility in Copenhagen, the conference facility was adjacent to a mall. Shopping mall. A shopping mall. And so a lot of the meetings took place in what was basically closed shops they in the mall. The shops they closed the shops for this. And so we were walking through this mall looking for the Chinese delegation. We hear on the radio that somebody's found a Chinese security official, and we think we know where, where the uh, premier, where the premier was. Door. The president said, let's go. So we walk over uh, to this, uh, uh, this room. It's a room that's uh, the, it's a glass room, but there are shades. There are um, curtains pulled, so you couldn't see into it. Um, knock on the door, the president pushes his way in, and it's not just Premier Wen, but it's also uh, Prime Minister Singh of India, President Zuma of South Africa, President Lula of Brazil. They're all meeting there on their own, while the rest of the uh, uh, countries are sort of waiting for them in order to move the negotiations ahead. And uh, there was this kind of very uh, interesting moment, I think probably un precedented in diplomatic history where the president and the secretary of state push their way into this room. There's a little scuffle between the Chinese official and the Secret Service. Um, uh, they make room for the president and for Secretary Clinton at the table. Uh, a number of us, uh, Todd, myself, uh, Jeff Bader, uh, Dennis McDonough, are sort of standing on the side uh, behind them uh, watching the negotiations. And this group of leaders and, and ministers start negotiating the final framework for Copenhagen. Um, they went back and forth, and uh, uh, Secretary Clinton is handing President Obama notes, handwritten notes with ideas, and they're drafting language, and are making good progress uh, in the negotiations. And at, at, and at one point, uh, uh, Todd hands the president a note, making sure that he reiterates that countries, all countries, developed and developing, are going to have to notify the, the, the UN, this process, of the obligations that they tend to take on, of how much they're going to reduce their emissions by, or so what the, year they're going to peak their emissions by. There would be some by. transparency on what the goals would be announced publicly, Absolutely. and they would have to then meet those goals. And meet those goals, and there would be some monitoring process to, to do that. And this has been a, a sticking point, because as much as the Chinese and Indian delegations recognize that we weren't going to be able to solve climate change unless they too participated. They were reluctant to breach this firewall between developed and developing countries that had been established in, in Kyoto. And so the president said, just one more thing, I just want to reiterate, and he, he laid out the issue about, you know, I want to make sure you understand how important it's going to be that you ex uh, express what your commitments are and that they be 
capable and subject to monitoring. And Premier Wen said yes. And at that point, uh, other members of his delegation started yelling, uh, in Chinese obviously, in Mandarin, um, at the Premier. The translator, this went on for perhaps 20 or 30 seconds, so awkward seconds, the translator on the Chinese side um, said, internal discussion only, <laughs> and did not translate <laughs> the back and forth. And you guys were using there. headsets or something? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it was all uh, consecutive. Uh, consecutive. Wow. Uh, uh, and so at that point, we were done. And uh, we got up and left and, and went to uh, another part of the conference facility to brief the Europeans on what had been agreed to and make uh, bring them on board uh, as well. Uh, and then uh, the, the rest was left to the details to, to work out over the next 36 hours in, in Copenhagen. Um, while we're summit hopping, maybe we can get to the, the APEC summit in 2014 when China is hosting. And you were at the USTR at the time. You were the U.S. Trade Representative. You had moved there in 20, 2013. And uh, could you talk a little bit about, in 2013, what the main goal was on the trade front for, there was a bilateral meeting between President Obama and uh, Hu Jintao um, that had a couple of elements, and the, the main trade one was around the information technology agreement right. uh, under the, the WTO. So uh, could you talk first what that agreement is and then how we try to use the APEC year that China was hosting in 2014 and then the summit meeting to, to kind of make a breakthrough and, and, and uh, get this agreement through? Well, one of the important uh, things about APEC is that it, it oftentimes was a, a place where new ideas were floated that then made their way into the WTO. So trade facilitation, for example, really started at an APEC and then became a WTO agreement in, in uh uh, 2013, uh, 2013 uh, in Bali. Uh, the uh, same was true on the Information Technology Agreement. There had been an agreement to eliminate tariffs on about 200 information technology products uh, back in the 90s. Uh, but obviously, information technology had evolved greatly in 20 years. And so... Fax machines, uh, right? Not so yeah, popular Exactly. Anymore, yeah. new, new issues. So we... Um, there had been a negotiation to uh, enhance that list, to add more products to that list for tariff elimination. And in fact, we ended up eliminating tariffs on another 200 items. Uh, China was a critical player, had become very much a critical player in the production of these products. So they had a lot to gain from this, but they also felt that a number of these sectors were sensitive and they were not used to eliminating tariffs where they still had sensitivities, even though they probably had the among the countries that had the most to gain from the agreement in terms of their export uh, potential. Uh, we used APEC to drive this because, in, in our view, it, China was the host of APEC. If APEC were to have credibility as an important international forum under China's leadership in particular, we had to see progress on the information technology agreement. And we had moved the other countries along well in the negotiation, but the key issue, as, as often was the case, was what would China agree to? And so this became a bilateral negotiation between the US and China. We had our list of, of priority products. They had their list of, of priority sensitivities. And the question was, could we find a, a common ground? And that APEC meeting and the bilateral meetings around it between uh, the two presidents proved to be important because it was an opportunity for them to actually reach an agreement that then drove 
and allow the WTO agreement to move uh, to move forward. I think one of the key parts about your participation in that was the number of meetings that you were able to come to China for and meet with the Vice Premier, uh, who was in charge of trade investment at the time, Wang Yang. Could you just recall what those meetings are like for those people who have not been in Zhongnanhai, the leadership <laughs> compound of how uh, how that orchestration works? Well, first of all, I was very grateful. The, the, I mean, the Chinese uh, leadership was deeply engaged on these issues and made themselves available and gave us access in order to have these conversations. Um, and we're always very well prepared and well briefed by their teams. The, the meetings uh, uh, are quite a formal setting. Uh, you, you sit side by side and large chairs uh, with a um, uh, 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 interpreter between you, um, interpreting lots of people on both sides. Um, uh, Vice Premier, uh, at the time, Vice Premier Wang Yang was uh, uh, very interesting because he, he liked philosophy, he liked to read, and we came into this habit of exchanging books every time we saw each other. And I would give him books on American history and American politics, and he would give me books on Chinese philosophy, and uh, the next time we saw each other, we would, we would talk about the books and then get into you know, the issues of uh, uh, can we add advanced medical equipment to the list of information technology products, uh, et cetera. Uh, but it was, a, it was a very good process and a reiterative process. And what would generally happen is we would come in with our list of suggestions, and they would go through some process internally, including with the relevant industry, uh, and come back to us and say, we can do A, B, and C, but we can't do D, E, and F, or we can only do 50% of that, and we would determine whether that was sufficient or not, or whether we needed to keep on, on pushing. And at the end of the day, we got a good agreement. How would you just compare uh, your access and interaction with Chinese officials at that level versus other economies that you dealt with, both allies like Japan and Korea, but also Europeans or, or kind of other countries? I mean, for those of us that are in Beijing serving the United States, it's just very frustrating to interact with many parts of the Chinese bureaucracy. And China has opened up in a lot of ways, but their bureaucratic system is still quite stovepiped and um, granting access as part of their negotiating kind of strategy. How did you find it, given you, you dealt with trade ministers from many different countries, how did you find your, your, your visits to Beijing and your access to you Chinese know, officials? I, I found, I, mean, I found as, as a non-China expert, but just somebody who dealt with China over the years in various negotiations, I found the Chinese side to be very disciplined. You got the impression that there had been a lot of preparation for these meetings that there was a set of talking points that no matter who you saw in the system, they all repeated the same set of talking points. As you move from one meeting to the next over the course of a day, they clearly had received a readout of your previous conversations. So there was a great deal of communication and uh, coherence. And I, I, on one hand, I think that was a positive because they spoke with one voice and um, certainly knew what the issues were that needed to be dealt with. On the other hand, you got the impression that nobody around the table necessarily had a lot of discretion themselves to cut a deal. When you sat with a minister from another country, you know, these, oftentimes these ministers were politicians themselves. They'd, They'd been, been elected. Elected, they were part of the parliament, they were part of a cabinet, um, they, un they understood how to cut a deal, uh, they were expected to find compromises and trade off one interest or another and, and um, had enough of a sense of where the different interests lay in order to be able to do that. With China, you got the impression that you would lodge your request and then behind the scenes there would be some extensive process that was quite opaque 
um, and the whatever came out of was it, turning exactly didn't quite see what was there. Whatever came out of out. it came out of it, but it was not it was not a situation where you could have a negotiation at the table and say, well, what about this? What about that? Mm -hmm. Everything had to be sent back to Beijing for consultation, and that's a little frustrating. At the WTO, you'd find you know you're staying up all night for several nights in a row trying to work through issues and come up with creative solutions, and some ministers around the table are. Uh, empowered and capable of doing that. In other cases, everything has to go back to capital. China wasn't the only country in which that was the case, but because of its importance to the international community, uh, one always hoped that China could come to the table with a bit more flexibility to find solutions uh, on the fly. Um, I wanted to end, we started talking about the G20 and, mm -hmm. and London and Pittsburgh with the final uh, G20 meeting that China hosted uh, that you came to in 2016 in Hangzhou, that uh, at that moment uh, we were working on two separate uh, trade uh, negotiations, one multilateral and one kind of bilateral. Uh, the Bilateral Investment Treaty was the bilateral one, which we were trying to make progress uh, on the Chinese negative list to grant mm -hmm. more market access to investors. And then under the WTO, the Environmental Goods Agreement, of trying to uh, bring to zero a range of uh, tariffs on a range of environmental products. Could you talk just a little bit about how, what happened and what your, your experience was in dealing with Chinese officials on those two issues and how those fit into kind of broader U.S. goals? Yeah, on, on the environmental goods agreement, like, like the information technology agreement, it was really just about coming up with a list of products that countries could agree to eliminate tariffs on. And it should have been a relatively easy negotiation. And again, because China is a major producer of these products, it had a lot to gain. And a major exporter. A yep. major exporter, exactly. That a lot to gain by reaching an agreement and having other countries drop their tariffs. Uh, we made a lot of progress. We were very close to reaching an agreement. Um, there were certain difficult to reconcile issues. The, uh, the, the uh, China was determined to eliminate tariffs on bicycles. The EU was determined never to uh, eliminate tariffs on bicycles, but we thought we could find ways through that. And then at the last minute, uh, China came literally the last day in, in, in Geneva and tabled a new proposal that was clearly designed to blow up the whole negotiation. It had a lot of things that crossed the red lines for both the United States and for the EU. Um, and it, to me, it was a disappointment because I think China could have very much harvested a very positive agreement that would have had substantial economic effect, but also impact on the environment on climate change, uh, on, on addressing a lot of China's own environmental issues in terms of getting uh, environmental technology into the Chinese market uh, more expeditiously. Uh, but for whatever reason, they made the determination they wanted to kill that agreement. And show leadership at the WTO as well. That is, at a yeah, time absolutely. when people were questioning the value of and the World Trade Organization, that would have been a major accomplishment. And, and this goes to my point from the, uh, from the start, which is when it came to some international finance issues, they were willing to step up. It was in their interest to do so, but they were willing to step up uh, at the G20. When it came to trade issues, they really have not been willing to take those steps of leadership commensurate with their role uh, as, as a major trading party, as the second largest economy and, in and the world. And by leadership, you mean reducing barriers or tariffs for companies or goods or services to operate in, in the this case market. in yeah. this case it can be about rules or it can be about market access but looking at the system as a whole for, for 75 years the u.s uh, viewed the multilateral system in such a way that um, we were willing to take 
certain steps because the system benefited us and everybody else. And sometimes that's meant that we went the extra mile to make sure that uh, the system worked. China has been more of a free rider on that system. That system has been very good to China. It's allowed the tremendous growth of China's export uh, regime, at, sometimes at the expense of jobs and industries in other countries. Now we see the pushback from that. And I think one of the reactions to the pushback needs to be China rethinking, is it willing to step up and play more of a stewardship role for the international system? And one of the areas that they were looking to write the rules on was on investment. And they saw the bilateral investment treaty with us, the negotiations with the United States and with Europe as a way to kind of do that. That was a very interesting negotiation because here uh, President Xi clearly saw this as a priority and put a lot of emphasis on it in the Chinese system. And you could see that by the seriousness of the teams at the table, by how much homework they did between sessions. We heard about meetings back in Beijing with hundreds of negotiators being trained on various issues. They, they really took this very seriously. We had, it was an intense negotiation. We met dozens of times. Our teams got together almost constantly for, for two years. Uh, and we made a lot of very good progress. I think we were about 90, 95% done uh, by the end of the o Obama administration. There were very few issues left, although the issues that were left were, were difficult and, and important. Um, uh, but I, what the, to me, what was interesting is we would have this conversation with our Chinese counterparts about SOE reform or state-owned enterprise reform or the importance of committing to um, not forced technology transfer or the importance of respecting international uh, intellectual property rights, all the sort of things that are still on the table now. And those were written in, sorry, just to be clear, those were written in rules, rules. that would have been in Fully enforceable, mm -hmm. fully enforceable. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then China would take this back and would convene meetings internally, whether it was by uh, Wang Yang or others, to bring together the various constituencies within the Chinese system to build consensus around that and show that they were willing to move forward. And we actually made a lot of progress. A lot of the things that China's dribbling out now as concessions to the US are things that we got them to agree to in the context of the bilateral investment treaty. When I say got them to agree to, we put on the table and they determined through their own internal processes that it was in their interest to do this. And that's what was important is that we, it helped move the agenda of reform in the Chinese, uh, in the Chinese system. Um, and you know, we'll see where it goes. I think uh, obviously the Trump administration has not continued those negotiations, but those issues very much remain on the table. And I think the bit negotiation process demonstrates that there is a possibility of sitting down with China, having a conversation about these issues, and then creating the mechanism by which they reach consensus internally to pursue the reform agenda. Just lastly, one of the things that really brought the Chinese to the table was where the Trans-Pacific Partnership was and the sense of being left out. And one of my abiding memories of the 2014 APEC meeting was setting up the leaders meeting <laughs> in our embassy gym and your ministers meeting in another part of the embassy. Um, and in fact, on the Chinese side, they would talk about how a bilateral investment treaty with the United States could be a stepping stone to eventually joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Could you just talk a little bit about the kind of regional dynamics and how you think that played sure. into to what China's thinking was? Well, I think that's right. I mean, when we launched uh, the or entered the most uh, intensive phase of the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations, this really, it wasn't about containing China so much as creating an alternative model in the region that other countries could aspire to and, 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 um, and 
associate themselves with about raising standards, labor, environmental standards, uh, protection of intellectual property rights, um, free flow of data, things of that sort, deep, um, deep market access. And uh, China was, when we first announced it, there was some hostility. Over time, it became more curiosity. And every time I would go to China, uh, I would be asked to debrief them on the status of the negotiations. They never asked to join, but they would ask questions like, what do we think the most difficult aspects of TPP would be for them to, com to comply with? So they were certainly looking at it uh, with great interest. And when it, the text was finally done and published, the next time I went to China, everybody had it on their desk. You know, translated clearly, into Chinese. Cl yeah. Translated into Chinese. Clearly, everybody was studying it to see what the next generation of standards uh, would look like. In the bit negotiations, we took a number of elements from TPP, more or less, almost 100% in some cases, and put them into the bit negotiation. And so I think there was a possibility of using these higher standards through the bit process to help encourage uh, greater discipline on China's part. Thanks so much. I wanted you to just say, kind of in closing, you spent a lot of time dealing with a lot of different countries, negotiating a lot for the next generation of Sinologists <laughs> and U.S. officials that have to interact with China, have to try to push U.S. interests. What sticks out in your mind of things to kind of keep a tab on or, or keep focus on? Well, look, I think one needs to be patient, um, particularly with the pro bureaucratic process on their side. But I, I found the more frank you could be in, in, in diplomatic terms and in, in polite rhetoric, but the more frank you could be in laying out uh, what the respective interests were of the countries, uh, what uh, the pathway forward was, um, and recognize um, where they might have divergent interests and try and find a way through that, uh, the more responsive they were. Sometimes I, I, I felt as though um, it might be difficult for them internally to wrestle through some of these issues on their own, but if we could lay out a pathway, then they had something to take back to their system to chew on. And so uh, we, we certainly didn't succeed on everything, but I think we made some significant progress. And given the importance of China uh, to the global economy now and going forward, I think this is all going to become you know, more critical. Thanks so much. Really appreciate your time, Mike. Thank you. United States Trade Representative Michael Froman, speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.